0: Well, good morning. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. <clears throat> Turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, book of Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me begin to maybe um, draw our hearts and minds to a proper posture before God's word this week. Well, August is birthday palooza in the McDonald household. Uh, all of our kids, all four of them have August birthdays, and uh, so Becky and I had a great idea. We'd just take one day, ruin the whole day, full of birthday parties, but then we're free for the next year. And uh, so what we did is we did all the birthdays uh, on one day here this past week. But it was interesting, it, um, at Kara, our little daughter's party, she's, uh, she just turned five, so when she was opening gifts, uh, probably maybe the first, second gift, gift into it, <clears throat> you couldn't even see her because she was just engulfed by all these other little girls all circling around like, what's in it? What's in it? And yet as I was standing there watching that, I thought, what, what a great picture of what our approach as a church should be around the word of God. Where we would gather around longing to see what is God going to unfold for us? What is he going to open up? What's going to be for us here? And I thought, man, I'm going to use that. Because that's exactly what our posture should be. And so as we come to Ephesians 4, God help us that we would come with that attitude, that longing, that anticipation, that excitement. God, what is it that you would say to us here this morning? And as we continue in our sermon series, Church on a Mission, the title of the message this morning is Ministry Necessity ministry necessity. And a couple weeks ago, we started this series by, by starting uh, first with gospel urgency, right? The urgency of the gospel, really the, the motivation that drives us to do and be all uh, that God would call us to do and to be. And now, really, uh, this morning, starting to see some of the work, the fruition of that, but before we get to chapter 4, right, it's always important to see a text in the appropriate context. Give me just maybe 90 seconds to give you a brief overview of Ephesians and uh, really the first three chapters. The book of Ephesians really could be broken down into two halves. Uh, the first three chapters are some of the most theologically rich scriptures in all of the Bible, in my opinion, and some of the highest, loftiest heights that the scripture takes us to with respect to uh, the gospel, towards the incredible blessings that God gives to us, um, the, the, uh, the, the almost the benediction at the end of chapter three, and that prayer that Paul uh, prays over the people, the mystery of the gospel, of course, the first part of Ephesians 2, Us being dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy. And of course, verses eight and nine, which we're so familiar with, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. I mean, these great passages. So it's this high, lofty view of the scriptures. And then starting in chapter four, through the rest of the book, Paul gets real practical, nuts and bolts, rubber to the road, uh, application of the truths that were bore out in the first three chapters. And uh, so what we see, I think, uh, so fully in uh, starting at the beginning of chapter four is this ministry necessity, but I think it's important for us to see it rooted in the fullness of all that God is and all that God has done for us to see it uh, rightly. So let me do this. Let me read. <clears throat> let me read Ephesians 4, verses one through 16, and, uh, and then we'll just begin to walk through this text and see all that God has for us. I'd encourage you to read along here as I read uh, the text, it says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But grace was given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and now he quotes from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in your translations, you probably see some parentheses around verses 9 and 10, because this is a parenthetical thought. This is a side thought. Paul, for the most part, when he writes, is great about just having this laser focus. Um, But Paul's kind of a nerd, and... uh, he, he gets distracted or he goes off on a rabbit trail here in verses 9 and 10 in terms of the larger argument that he's making. And so notice in verse 9, he says, He ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And as he's reading from or quoting Psalm 68, <clears throat> what you see in verse 8, he, he, gets, he, he gets off track and he starts talking about this ascended part and so I I just want to talk about it briefly because this is the only time we're going to deal with verses 9 and 10 this morning and just for you to understand he's he's filling that out it's like he's just too tempted to leave it alone he's like I got to say something about that and then he continues with his argument but as you read through it it's almost you kind of feel like a ping pong ball getting bounced back and forth so let me go back to verse 7 I'll read verse 7, verse 8, and then jump down to verse 11. And I think that might give us a a clearer sense of what he's trying to say here. Go back to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And Dwayne's already prayed for our time, and so let's just go ahead and begin to launch ourselves here into the text and into what God has for us, this concept of um, ministry necessity, ministry necessity, the necessity that all of us have, that God gives to all of us, that God puts in all of us to be on mission, to live in ministry, really begin to frame our thoughts and mind. Sorry, I can't seem to clear my throat here. This idea around um, what God has for us here, here's really the nail of where we're going this morning. It's that God's mission, listen, loved ones, God's mission, gospel urgency, compels us to use our giftedness for the kingdom. All right, you got that? God's uh, mission compels us to use our giftedness to expand, to grow, to develop, to further his kingdom. And as the gospel begins to take root in my life, as it begins to take root in your life and the fullness of all that Christ has done for us, we begin to see what God has put into us, how he's wired us, how he's equipped us, how he's gifted us. We begin to look at what's around us and how we begin to... Uh, intersect with that, interact with that, with respect to the gospel and that going forward. So four things from the text here this morning with respect to ministry necessity. It'll take us a little while to get through this first point because this really frames uh, the heart and the mind of what I think God has for us and how God wants us to think and function and operate. Uh, but look at verse one. Look at verse one. First thing we see here. Uh, ministry necessity, here's the principle up front, accepts a worthy calling. Ministry necessity accepts a worthy calling. And in the context of the letter of Ephesians, as Paul's talking about all these great things, all these spiritual blessings, all these phenomenal things that Jesus has done and all the ways that he's moved and worked and, and the gospel and whatnot. Now he's going to put it on the ground, right? Nuts and bolts, very practical. Three things in verse one I want you to make note of. Here's the first. Look at what Paul says. He says, I therefore, right, drawing on this argument from the first three chapters... And then he says this. A, what's that next word? Tell me. No, say it loudly. Prisoner. Prisoner, prisoner for who? For the Lord. Paul says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He, he, he refers to himself as a prisoner, specifically a prisoner of the Lord. Now, it's kind of ironic that as Paul writes this, we believe that he's actually in prison. But notice part of what he's saying. He's saying, Yes, I'm a prisoner but I'm not imprisoned by bars or chains. I'm imprisoned by the Lord Jesus. See, what Paul is really telling us is he's telling us to think rightly. What he's saying is, he's pointing to who is it that I really belong to? Ultimately, who is it that has me? Paul's saying prison doesn't have me. I'm not gripped by the Roman government. I'm held by Jesus Christ. That's who has me. That, that's who is gripping me. And in the same way that Paul is thinking rightly about himself, you and I, we have to think rightly about ourselves and, and our position before God. We have to recognize who we are in light of who God is and recognizing what it is to be rightly positioned before him, not just righteous before him, but our positioning before him and recognizing that, listen, listen, We belong to him. Do you know that you belong to him? That you belong to Jesus? You're his. Okay, we're not co pilots. Okay, we're not riding shotgun with Jesus and, hey, you might want to check that that, that meter over there. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Okay, it's not Jesus and associates. That's not how the church works. We belong to him, we're his. In fact, I find it quite interesting that Paul, Peter, uh, James, and Jude, all at some point in their writings, starting different letters, said these words, I, Paul, I, Peter, I, James, I, Jude, a servant, the most appropriate word there, would actually be a slave of God. See, they understood that we belong to him. We we, we don't belong to ourselves. There's no disillusionment of some form of autonomy. Sometimes we like to think that. Of course it's not really true but we belong to him we have to think rightly about this not only do we belong to him but we have to understand that following him comes at a cost and right? it's costly to forsake any sense of autonomy it's costly to give ourselves fully to Jesus We have to think rightly because when we lose sight of this, when we begin to think that that's not really how God operates or functions in our life, then that's the temptation for us to see things wrongly. And all of a sudden, when life doesn't go the way that we think or that we want or that we plan, then we become disillusioned or frustrated or even angry at God because I'm not happy, healthy, and wealthy right? And when my health fails me, when the money runs out, when I'm not satisfied with where God has me, we don't move to the place of, God, I belong to you, so I will willingly accept whatever it is that you choose to bestow upon, upon me. We begin to go, God, why are you doing this? Not with a legitimate questioning, but almost with resentment. Or maybe we even move to the place where we begin to say, God, how dare you do this? As if God somehow owes us something, See, we have to think rightly. We have to see who we are in light of who God is. Could you say, as Paul says, I, Mike, I, go ahead and put your name in the blank, a prisoner for the Lord. If not, if not, there's likely some form of disillusionment in your life. Uh, Also, you're not thinking biblically. And the mindset has to change. We have to think rightly, we have to see ourselves as a prisoner of the Lord. Notice this secondly, part of accepting a worthy calling. It's not just about what we think. And then Paul says this: "A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. urge you to walk." Now how many people want to bet that, as Paul was writing this, "I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk." Okay, there is zero percent chance that's how Paul was thinking that. OK? It was probably something like, "I, I urge you. I'm petitioning, I'm pleading, I'm begging of you. I mean, you, you can see that in the text. You can sense that. Love ones. I'm begging you to walk. What is it to walk with someone? See, to, to, to walk with someone is an expression of relational closeness, of intimacy, of oneness, of togetherness. It's the shoulder to shoulder, side by side. I'm with you in this. See, to walk with Christ is to have intimacy with Him. It's to be close with Him. It's 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 to long to know Him and to know Him personally, not just about Him, but to know Him. Yeah, that's what He's saying. I urge you to walk. See, it's about being close. Let me just ask you, are you walking closely with Jesus? Are you walking closely with him? Now, See, I'll tell you that far too often, far too often um, in the church, especially as Westerners and our very task-oriented mindsets, what we want to default to is not so much being with God, we want to do things for him. Okay? Um, Before we can ever get to that point, It starts with us simply being with him, okay? It starts with us thinking rightly about ourselves. It starts with us walking closely, being intimate, being close, relationally connected to God before we ever get to doing anything. I mean, you can see, I mean, how clear is that in the text? Prisoner of the Lord, okay, I'm gonna think rightly about myself, urge you to walk. Okay, now he's gonna start telling us what that looks like. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, so we're going to think rightly, we're going to walk closely. Here's the third thing that Paul is pointing out here about accepting this worthy calling. It's that we live obediently. We live obediently. Now this word um, worthy in the text, this is really kind of a fascinating word. The word there literally means balancing scales. It's the idea, it's the idea that my conduct is congruent with my position of who I am in Jesus that my lifestyle matches what I profess to be true of in my heart and in my mind. Are we walking in obedience? Is my life being altered by the truth of God's word? Am I following Jesus when I come to the scriptures and and I recognize that something, oh, he's he's speaking something into my life and that's not true of me. Do I course correct? Or do I try to doctor the scriptures so as to accommodate what's going on in my life? Am I letting the truth of God's word change me Let me stop here, Um, because there's a danger in this. We've already touched on this, but there's a danger in hearing this point about living obediently. And we begin to focus in on the obedience, really to the exclusion of all other things. And what we tend to do is we do one of two things. We go, "Uh, hey, are you living in obedience? No, I'm not. And so then what begins to happen is there's this resolve inside of us. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to be better. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. No, you're not. You've just proven you can't do that. So you've, you've got that wrong way of thinking. Or, or, or the, other, the other erroneous thought is that we go, you know what, I am living obediently. We get to pat ourselves on the back. And we're like, man, I'm such a great Christian. Jesus, you're so lucky to have me on your team. Man, think of where you'd be without me. Like, if you didn't have me, where would you be? See, because we're all fixated on the, the obedience, on the behavior, on the performance. But listen, loved ones, Listen to run right to the obedience piece without first addressing the mind and the heart is to race to a form of moralism that is vacated of the gospel and has no regard for the reality that Jesus has rescued me. So whether you find yourself here this morning, you're like, I am not living in obedience. Well, there's good news for you because Jesus Christ and him alone is gonna remedy that. You couldn't do it anyway and you've proved it. If you are living in obedience, there's good news for you too. That Jesus Christ can sustain you in that. That the Spirit of God can uphold you in that. And that victory can be sustained in your life. But notice that in neither of those examples does it have anything to do with your ability to see it through. And so yes, he calls us to walk in obedience, to live in obedience. But it starts first with us thinking rightly and walking closely. See, get this, get this. If you, if you walk away with one thing here this morning, I want you to get this right here. You and I will never live in obedience until we first think rightly about God and ourself and are driven to walk closely with him. Here's what I mean by that. Intimacy with Jesus will always precede obedience to him. You might want to write that down, engrave that in your mind, make sure you got that because as Christians in this society, we really struggle with this concept intimacy with Jesus will always 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 precede obedience to him if you don't love him you won't follow or obey him it really is that simple and for far too many of us we love the things of God or the things that God brings about and not God himself now some of you some of you you find yourself here this morning and you are stuck in sin you are ensnared by some particular behavior, activity, mindset, thought, whatever it may be. And try as you may, you can't get free of it. And I see this all the time. People roll into my office all the time and I'm struggling, I can't get free of this, I can't get out of this. And then what they proceed to tell me is all the different ways that they have tried to free themselves. I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna be more diligent, I'm gonna be better at this. I just want to look at him and be like, you don't have a discipline problem. You have a love problem. You don't love Jesus the way that you should. That's why it's manifested this way in your life. You love that particular thing, or really, if we're honest, you love yourself more than you love God. That's what's going on. And so as we think about these things, right, embracing the calling doesn't start with our behavior. The behavior is simply reflective. It's a manifestation of what's going on in our hearts and our minds. Got to get the root issue. If you find obedience difficult, you have to address the mindset and intimacy with Jesus before the behavior is ever going to change. So we talk about ministry necessity. First and foremost, we accept a worthy calling. Notice this secondly, verses 2 and 3. Paul really begins to flesh out what that looks like. I just wrote this down, that Ministry necessity walks in humble obedience. Ministry necessity, it walks in humble obedience. Part of being on mission is, is how we live our lives. And so, yes, some of what we're going to see in these next couple of verses is informative, uh, but it also uh, holds us in, 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 um, to account. And so, we begin to ask ourselves the question is, is this how I'm living my life? Is this true of my life? Is this reflective of who I am? If yes, great. God is gripping your heart. If not, don't go to the place of I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more. You've got to first think rightly and move close to Jesus. And so notice five different things that Paul mentions here in verse two and three, really fleshing out what it is to walk in humble obedience. He says this, verse two, with all humility. Part of our life is there's the fullness of humility. Humility is really the attitude that says that I can't do it alone. We've talked about this already. It's recognizing who I am in light of who God is. It's that I see my sin. I recognize my failure, my shortcoming, my insufficiencies. But I see that in light of who Christ is. I see that in light of the cross and what God has done. And so I recognize it's not dependent upon me. It's not tied to me. It's not drawn upon whether or not I can be successful or perform. But see, part of what happens in the life of anyone where humility begins to be cultivated or developed because I see how Jesus has rescued me when someone fails me when someone sins against me when someone shorts me here's one of the ways you know that humility is being developed in your life is that you respond the way that Jesus does that your primary response is grace and empathy it's truth and honesty it's compassion and care Because you don't look at someone who has wronged you first and foremost going, you owe me. You look at someone else really in the same way that you look at yourself. You go, you know what? I see the broken, fallen sinner in me, in you. And in the same way that Christ has responded with incredible grace and compassion and care and concern, you know what? I'm gonna gonna model that. That's one of the ways you know that Christ has gripped your heart. That's one of the ways you know that humility is rising up inside of you. That your response is not condemnation. It's not this self righteousness that I'm not like that guy. You're right. You're worse than that guy. <laughs> Seriously, because you fail to recognize the gospel and the work of Jesus in your own life, and then you put a standard on someone else that you yourself don't even uphold. It's hypocrisy. See humility. I recognize who I am in light of who Jesus is. Notice the secondly all humility and gentleness some of your translations might say meekness really the the word there literally means power under control you want an illustration of this think of a tamed lion think of a horse that's been properly broken or trained it's not that the power no longer resides it's not that they're not capable of power they're still capable of incredible power it's just measured it's just controlled it just knows when to come out and when to restrain see that's what it is to be gentle it doesn't mean that you're a pushover it doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy that you can't be firm it just means you don't have to blow someone else to prove that you can do it that there's power under control that's what it is to walk in humble obedience So there's a gentleness I'm not particularly fond of this next one Um, With patience. I wish I could say we don't have time to do it and just move on, Um, but uh, that would not be a faithful engagement of the text. Uh, The word here literally means endurance, forbearance, and I love this, slowness in avenging wrongs. It's that I endure with others that I'm not quick to seek justice or vengeance. Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the dangers in living in a society where um, we so highly value instant gratification is we take that and we impose that on people. Sanctification, by and large, is not an instantaneous item. In fact, rarely is that the case. 99.999% of the time, sanctification is a slow, methodical work of God. Yeah, what do we do? We look at our spouse, we look at our children, we look at our coworkers, we look at our parents, we look at our friends, and it's like, man, why can't you just be fully sanctified like right now? Even though we know that's not true in our own life. We want people to be unashamedly gracious with us. But am I willing to forbear? Is there a slowness in avenging wrongs? Am I willing to let the methodical work of God Take place in their lives. And then, this, look at this. Fourthly, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. And specifically, we're to bear together in love. Look at what it says bearing with one another in love. Love is the qualifier in the way in which we bear with one another. To bear with one another is to be committed to one another, it's to endure shortcomings, to endure failures and disappointments in each other. Now, see, the problem is, right, we've already talked about this a little bit, is that we're not patient. We don't do this, right? You fail me, you wrong me, you cheat me. You're done, you're gone, you're excluded, you're out. We're not willing to bear with each other. We just cut them off, we just walk away. Okay, I'm done, no more. Fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. (laughs) Nope. Now ask yourself, ask yourself this question. How is it that Jesus has responded to my failures, to my shortcomings, and to my disappointments? How is it that he's responded to you in that way? And then how does his response begin to inform how you and I should respond to one another? Right In Galatians 6, Paul talks about bearing one another's burdens. It's the same thing. It literally means, it literally means to shoulder up under the burden of someone else. When Becky and I were living in Vienna, we... We we were living. We came back to Arizona for the summer to see family, and um, one of her college friends came out, and so we went up to the Grand Canyon, and uh, we took the Grand Canyon Railway, it's a little train that runs out of Williams, about 30 miles west of Flagstaff, and kind of a fun way to go up to the canyon. And so you get up there, you got like three four hours to tool around, you get back on the train, and you come back down. And so obviously we've been up to the canyon, growing up in northern Arizona, countless times. And so you know you can walk around the rim for a few minutes, but it's more fun in the canyon than it is on top of the canyon. So we start hiking down. Uh, A little ways, and we—I don't know—probably two, two and a half miles down into the canyon. Say, we should probably turn around if we're gonna uh, get back and make it to the train. Well, we start walking out, and uh, between the heat uh, and the altitude and the dryness, her friend was just really struggling uh, to get out. And it got to the point where we'd go about 30 yards, and then we'd have to stop. And so I'm kind of looking at the time and starting to get worried. No, it's not like your car is sitting up there now. Who cares? You're an hour or two later than you thought, Big Whoop. You missed the train. You're kind of stuck. And so finally, I said, we got to go. We got to go. And she's like, I can't do it. So I said, all right, hop on. And so for probably the last mile, mile and a half out of the canyon, I carried her on my back out of there. See, that's what it is to shoulder up under someone. You willing to do that? You willing to do that for another believer? You willing to say, "Like, hey, n- not just let me help you. No, no, here, let me carry it all. That's a whole other ball game, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what he's telling us here. Not only do we do it, but we do it in love. Now, I'll tell you one way. I'll just tell you one way in this church that you can do that. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with what's going on with Christine Trujillo? You guys familiar with that? Okay, fair amount of you. So Christine Tru- Trujillo has been bedridden for uh, almost all of 2015. Uh, virtually incapable of moving. Spent about three months in Phoenix uh, getting all kinds of treatment. And so the elders were over there last Monday praying for her. And I said, Christine, what can we do? What can we do? She said, said, Mike, I'll tell you what you can do. I want people who will fervently pray for me. And then she said something to the effect of, I don't want the games. I don't want like the occasional, oh, if I think about it. Morning and evening, I'm gonna petition the Lord, persistently pray for me. There's one way. There's one way you can say, you know what, I'll carry the whole thing. I'll carry the whole blasted thing. That's what it is to bear up. That's what it is to walk in humble obedience before our Lord, bearing with one another in love. Here's the final thing that Paul says: eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and he qualifies that as well in the bond of peace. Are we going to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? We're going to do so in peace. I think we like the sound of that. That sounds really good. I mean that that's like a great slogan or a tagline, like yeah, that's what we're about. But I don't think we really love the work that's required to pull that off. And I think most of us approach unity uh, not with an eagerness, but almost kind of a apprehension. Kind of a, well, I'll, I'll do it, but I don't want to. Because think about it, what does it take to maintain things? There's a lot of work. There's a lot of effort. It's a continual process. And then things keep breaking down, don't they? You think about your car. What happens if you don't service your car? It's going to up and die, isn't it? Think about your yard. You don't water it. You don't weed it. You don't care for it. It's going to die or it's going to get taken over by weeds or whatever. Think about your body. I think that one's kind of a cruel joke in a sense because it's going to fail you either way. (laughs) Right? It's going to betray you. There's going to come a point in time you're going to die. In fact, I did a funeral this Thursday. Monica Pardo's mother Right? All of us, all of us, all of us. That, that day, a um, little over a week ago when her mother went to be with Jesus, your day, my day, it's coming. We're closer now than we've ever been to that day. And you're gonna walk out of here and tomorrow you're gonna be that much closer. Let's not be unrealistic about the fact that we're gonna die. If we don't maintain things, it falls apart. And see, unity, unity is no different. The attitude that Paul tells us that we're to be eager In maintaining unity. Okay, Mike, how do we do that? How do we accomplish that? Here's three things, just three things to make note of, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Here's the first is we keep short accounts. We keep short accounts with one another. We forgive and we seek to be forgiven. That that we have to be right with each other, that we seek to be right with each other. I'm not gonna let sin dwell, I'm not gonna let sin exist uh, in between us. Where forgiveness is absent, sin is present. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 you got to get right with each other. Keep short accounts. Here's the second thing. You want to maintain unity? you got to be honest. you got to be honest. you got to be willing to speak the truth to one another. Uh, one of the very first Proverbs that I ever memorized is found in Proverbs 27. Now listen, listen, listen. Great wisdom here. It says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And then he goes on and he says this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. not that powerful? Right? A friend, a friend's going to shoot straight with you. A friend's going to be honest. A friend's going to be real. A friend's going to let you know what you need to hear, even when you don't want to hear it. An enemy? No, man, they'll just tell you what you want to hear. It's not worth it to them. Now, are you a friend to those uh, whose hard word they can trust, or are you treating even your loved ones from a biblical standpoint as an enemy because you won't speak truth into someone's life? No way you're going to maintain unity if you're not going to be honest. Here's the third thing, is we respond in humility. Right, we've talked at length about this already. I'm not going to press into it too much, but right, when, when honesty is held in tension with humility, we can hear the hard word and we can receive the hard word. And we can be on both sides of this. And really, all three of these things are simply us living out the gospel in our lives. And all of this comes because we're directed towards Jesus and our need of him. Ministry necessity. We accept a worthy calling. We walk in humble obedience. Here's the third thing, just briefly. Verses four through six is that we follow God's lead. We follow God's lead. And and if you were to read verses four through six, you see a lot of the word one showing up. In fact, seven times, right? One body, one spirit, hope, uh, baptism, God, Lord, faith. Over and over and over again, we see this one showing up. But see, all of this oneness is centered around the person of God. It'll become really important when we get to these next couple of verses here in just a moment to recognize that we're unified around a singular purpose. And the unity that exists here in verses four through six is tied to the fact that we're following God, that we're, that we're united around a common purpose. And that's found in Jesus. Now, I do want to make a quick note here that I think it's important to make a distinction between unity and uniform. Okay, unity, unity is we're tied to a common purpose. We're together on a common purpose, though we may look very different. Uniform is that we're all supposed to look the same see part of the beauty of the church is that we don't look the same that there are some things that I'm just downright horrible at and some of you are phenomenal at and I'm so thankful that I don't have to be good at everything and that's okay because there's some things you're really bad at and I'm pretty good at and so it works out that we serve one another in that and ultimately we serve Jesus in that but the danger right? the danger is thinking well we all have to look this way no we don't Yeah, we've got to be tied around a common purpose. We've got to be about the person of Jesus. We're not going to look the same. There's one purpose, and it's tied around one one person. It's about God's glory as we seek to expand His family. And here's how it's manifested. Final thing we see here. Look at verses 7 through 16. Part of ministry necessity is that we use our giftedness. That we use our giftedness. That we use what God has put into us. Now look at verse 7 and following. Here's what Paul tells us. He says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11 he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want you to notice first and foremost that everyone is given a gift. That word grace in verse seven is not talking about grace unto salvation. It's a gift from God. Right? Grace is just simply something that we've been given that we don't deserve. You don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve salvation, but you and I also don't deserve spiritual gifts either. Right? We haven't earned that or, or merited that. But he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the giftedness that God has put into us and why it's so important for us to be able to see things in the context So important to read the scriptures in context. We don't just race around grabbing verses here or there. But to see the flow of what God is trying to say. Because you wouldn't see that in the first seven verses. But as you read in verse 8 and and 11 and 12. You realize he's not talking about salvation. Here he's talking about spiritual gifts. One One of the ways I like to say this in terms of context being so important. Is a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now that's just a really nerdy way of saying a passage without context is the starting point for misusing scripture, okay? You want to just grab stuff out of context. It's not going to be long before you're misusing, misquoting what God's word says to us. And so Paul here, as he begins to unfold this idea that we're all given gifts, look at what he says. Grace was given each one of us. Each one of us, every one of you has a spiritual gift. Most of us have a few of them. And all of that according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Right? Even His giving of some of these gift uh, gift sets for the, the well being of all others is a gift to you and I. It's God's grace in this. And all of it, all of it, all of it is ultimately a gift from God. Part of using our giftedness is first recognizing that we're given gifts. Let me just say this. Do not, do not, do not make the mistake about getting excited about the gift itself or even the person in whom the gift resides and not Jesus. Okay, the, 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 the giftedness in individuals should not lead us to make much of that gift or even of the individual, they should, make, they should lead us to the place where we're making much of the giver of the gift. He's the one that's put it into us. You and I could do nothing without him. I start to go, man, he's amazing because of what he's put into her or him. No, no, we go, God's amazing because of what he's put into us. We're all given gifts. Notice this secondly, really the crux of the issue here for us this morning. There's an expectation that we use our gifts. Verse 11, Paul tells us that God gives some gift sets, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We could talk at length about what that looks like and who those are, but I don't think that's really the... Um, the, the main thrust for us here this morning, verse 12, he gives them to equip the saints. Now you understand we're all the saints, right? It's not just a select few, it's not just some, like we are all the saints. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. So, so get this, God gave some to equip the rest for the work of the ministry. Do You see the inclusion in that? See how we're all to be doing the work? We're all to have ministry uh, going on in our lives. That's the crux of the issue here this morning. That God has given us gifts and there's an an expectation that we're to use our gifts. God does not equip you for ministry. Listen very carefully. God does not equip you for ministry so that you will not use gifts for ministry. Okay, that's foolishness. God puts that into you because he wants you to use them. He wants you to do something with them. He wants you to to, um, flesh that out. And when I say ministry, I'm not talking about formal ministry. I'm not talking about full-time ministry. I'm talking about you and I living on mission for Jesus wherever God has placed us. So wherever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself at work, um, as a stay-at-home mom, um, in retirement, wherever you find yourself, God has put something in you and He expects you to use it in that particular place. That's what it is to do ministry. And really, this expectation to use our gifts, it's it's really a stewardship issue. That's really what it boils down to, like so many other things that God gives to us. He entrusts them to us. But we're going to account for that. You're going to show up one day, and God's going to say, Hey, I put this into you. What'd you do with that? Nothing. <laughs> Man, I, I had some great personal profit. Thank you. It was phenomenal to have some. That's not why I gave it to you. Yeah, that might be a benefit. That might be a side um, a consequence of that. But there's an expectation that we use our gifts. I want to point one, one other thing out here. He says this in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God doesn't put the same level of giftedness in each of us. For some of you, that's exciting because God put a lot into you. For others of you, you're like, wait, 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 I got shortchanged. Here's what you got to hear in this. You be faithful to fulfill what God has put into you. Don't worry about comparing to people around you. Don't go, well, I got to be as good as that guy or I only have to be as good as that gal. No, no. You be faithful to utilize to the fullest extent possible what God has put into you. And you don't worry about anything else. God's gonna gonna hold them accountable for what he's put into them. God's gonna hold you accountable for what he's put into you. You do with what God has put into you and don't worry about what he's put into them. We use our giftedness as an expectation to use our gift. Here's the final thing. I'm not really going to press into verses 13 through 16. You can uh, read this on your own. Uh, but for the sake of time, just know this, that, that um, as we use our giftedness, that maturity is developed through our gifts. That what happens in us and what happens to those around us is that the maturity begins to grow and, and, and come through uh, the use of our giftedness. That as we use our gifts, we grow up into maturity and the people that are blessed by that also grow up into maturity. And so just know that there's great benefit in us doing the thing that God has called us to do. Let me just try to tie this all together here in these last few moments here. Um, because I think this is such a critical thing for us moving forward as a church. To recognize the ministry necessity that God has placed in each and every one of our lives. And that as, as a church that we want to get on mission, we want to be on mission, part of it is we have to embrace the necessity of ministry. But part of that is that it comes a point in time where we have to put into practice what God has entrusted to us, primarily around the gospel, but certainly fuller than just evangelism. Because how do we do that? How do we do that? How, how do we begin to do how, how do we begin to flesh that out? What does it look like to be a church on mission? here's just a few suggestions far from comprehensive or exhaustive here's uh, w- one of the most obvious ones is faith serves September 12th we're going to go out we're going to serve in the community uh, by God's grace we're going to come face to face with a number of people that don't know Jesus and we're going to get to talk about him that's the hope that's the desire that's part of living on mission man I want to share the gospel I want to share the gospel with believers because we need it too but I certainly want to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus I have no idea. Faith serves discipleship. Invest in discipleship. Some of you, for some of you, you need to get into discipleship. For some of you, it's time to start leading in discipleship. The church that Becky and I came from in Arizona, Flagstaff's a a very young community and no one, virtually no one retires and moves to Flagstaff, but almost everyone retires and moves out of Flagstaff. It's expensive, it snows a ton, and it's cold. So, you know, that's not exactly like retirement um, Shangri-La. So you kind of get out of there. The church we came from was probably twice the size of Faith Church. On a typical Sunday morning, at most, check this out, at most, we would have three people that were over 70. One of the things we loved about coming out here is that's not the case. See, we, we have a lot of people in this church who can teach us younger people what prolonged faithfulness looks like, who can come alongside and say, I know you feel like this is never gonna end. It's gonna be next week, and you're gonna wish that you were back here. Now, for some of you older people, I'm asking you, come walk with us. Come lead us. Come show us what that looks like. For you younger people, don't be so arrogant, don't be so foolish, don't be so naive as to think that they don't have something to offer you. They will forget more on Tuesday afternoon than you know in your entirety right now. All right? Let's learn from them. Let's grow from them. Let's grab the baton from them because when their day comes, then we're up. We invest in discipleship. No shortage of ways to be involved in the church. One of the primary ways is go serve our children. Go serve in our children's ministry. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'll sit down with people and be like, oh, I want to do anything. I just don't want to serve with children. And then I usually get some great lip service about how they're the future and how great they are. And if, if, if we really say what we say about children and we really believe that, we just have to be turning you guys away. No, we have too many volunteers. We can't get enough people on the calendar as it is. Let me press that a little bit further. Men, go serve our children. What our society needs more than anything is godly men teaching boys and girls what godly men look like. Because by and large, we don't know anymore. Now let me press that a little bit further. What is the primary way in which God the Father, I just gave it away, chooses to describe himself? He's a father. So don't you think it would be brilliant of Satan if we have no concept of what a righteous, loving, godly father looks like to distort that understanding? We need godly men who are willing to say, you know I will pour myself into young men, young women, boys and girls, so as to teach them and to show them what a godly father looks like. Let me just press this one just a little bit further. Men. We got single moms raising kids, Grandkids. I'm I'm a sucker for a single mom. I didn't, grow up, I didn't grow up in that kind of household. But I'm a sucker for that because I recognize and realize that those kids are put at such an incredible disadvantage. But here's what I had in my life. I had numerous men that at different points in my life came and poured into me and Randy Smith, and Gary Milton, and Sirajan, and Mark Johnson, and Paul Meldrum. Most, if not all of those guys, you have no idea who they are. But to me, they're heroes. Because when I was 12, or when I was 15, or when I was 19, and when I was just stupid, they came and walked with me. Go find some young kid, go find some young boy, and say, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to show you what a godly man looks like. I know some of you, some of you, right? Sometimes you have single dads. I'm not saying that that's not hard too. But there is something to be said about God as a father that by and large is lost in our society at this point. And now after all of that, just serving in children ministry looks pretty good, doesn't it? It's like, oh, that's pretty easy. I'll just do that. I'll let God and... His spirit speak into that. You can serve in our children's ministry. You serve with our students. Variety of ways that you can serve in the student ministry. Grab Pastor Stephan and say, hey man, I want to invest in teenagers. So confused and lost. I'll tell, I'll tell you who heroes are. I taught middle school for one year. You are crazy if you can do that. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. You're going to be living large in eternity. Because those are some of the most crucial years in anyone's life. And we all know it. We all know it. Because you ask anyone, what's the one age you'd never go back to? And it's that age. None of us, we wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. Go serve with our students. Find Pastor Randy, say, hey man, I, w- I want to get involved in the worship ministry. I've got musical talent or I've got a desire for audiovisual. visual. I want uh, to plug in there. Begin to speak with him. Greeters, the visitor table. Um, Just simply being willing to share your faith. There's so many different ways in our church, outside our church. Come to Generous Hearts. Generous Hearts is this Wednesday, about 1230 to four, serve a number of um, lower income families. There's no shortage of ways. See, what it comes down to is, are we gonna be a church on mission? Are we gonna be a church on mission? Is there an urgency for the gospel? Is there a desire to see the gospel go forward? Is, 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 Is that what fuels us? Because if it is, we're not going to be able to stop this desire to be on mission, the necessity for ministry. But if we don't love the gospel, if we don't love Jesus, if we're not fired up about that, it won't happen. It simply won't happen. So God help us. God help us that what we would be is that we would be a church on a mission and that we would embrace the ministry necessity that God has for us. Let's pray.